0: This morning's scripture reading is from Psalm 19, Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. Also keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. and Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.
1: Thank you, Bill. That's a sermon in itself, isn't it? It's kind of what actually I'm, I'm hoping that you guys can see through this is that the scriptures themselves are the sermon. A lot of times we, we feel we need to come to church to, um, to be filled up, to be told what to do, and yet sometimes when you open the scriptures, they just it's amazing. God speaks to you. It's kind of like it's his word and he's talking to you. <laughs> Let's, uh, let's pray as we as we dive into this third part today as we wrap up this series. Father, we thank you that you are our greatest treasure. I know we don't always act that way, and I thank you for your loving rebuke, your patient, long suffering with us, but also, God, your jealous love that pursues us, that doesn't leave us to our own ends, our own means, and our own wells that poison us, but Father, you pursue us because you love us. Open our hearts today to your word, and God, I just pray that we walk out of here equipped also, knowing how to take this forward into life and what the next steps are. Just guide my words Let people not see me or hear my words, but only yours. In your name we pray, amen. So this series that we've been going through the last two weeks, and this is the last one today, is uh, called Theology and Worship. I probably could have come up with a better title, honestly. Uh, it just kind of, once it's in the bulletin, it's printed, so we have got to stick with it. So uh, theology and worship, it's basically just, theology is just a study of God. And as we've looked at this, we've looked at how the study of God, how we learn about God, how that influences what our worship is. And I hope you guys can see by now, worship is not just something we sing. It's not just something that we do on Sunday morning. It's not just music or a style. Worship is is more than that. It's also not just a lifestyle. It's not just the way you live. It's not just actions. It's more than that. Worship comes from our hearts treasuring God above everything else. And it is expressed in different ways. Songs like what we just sang make it very easy for our hearts to connect with because God wired us that way. He wired us to be able to sing music and, and to be able to to be able to connect our emotions and express them in that way. Um, Even for the tone-deaf people, I haven't met a person yet who doesn't enjoy music in some way, who doesn't listen to a tune and and tap their foot or something. It's just wired into us, and that's okay. But it's not the only expression of worship, and I hope you guys have seen that. It's more than that. It's in the way we live. It's in um, the art that we create. It's in um, how we obey the commands that God gives us. This last week, I, um, Leah and I watched a short little video, and I didn't originally plan on putting this in the sermon, but this morning I was thinking it through and thought, well, that was really profound, and I thought it would be good to pass along. We were watching a video of Francis Chan, and um, as some of you guys know, he left his megachurch uh, down south. He went into San Francisco about 10 years back, five years back, I don't know when it was went into the, the suburbs of San Francisco and has been doing kind of house churches in that area. And uh, someone asked him in this panel, um, what do you do with the homosexuality problem down there in San Francisco when someone walks through the door, you know, a gay couple comes in, what do you do, what do you talk, what do you say? And his answer was very humble um, and direct, and I thought it was really good because it was applicable not just to that thing. And he said... We, we get kind of the cart ahead of the horse. I've been using that phrase a lot, but he kind of said it too. And, and we start focusing on that sin. He said, really, the main thing that matters is for anyone, and it's not just a gay couple, anyone. The main issue is, do you believe in your core that there is a God? Do you believe there's a God that rules the universe that created you? And if you do, are you willing to do anything he says? Because if that isn't answered, it's not going to matter. You can't jump right to the application. If you can get people to see that, where we come to the same point where there is a God, he is the one that calls the shots. It's from there that you open up the book and you start reading through and you see, okay, well, what does he tell me to do? Francis is comical, so he had a few little... I mean, if God says you need to stand on your head... For five minutes a day, you'd have to do it. You know, he's in charge. But his main point was, that's at the core of everything. And I was thinking about how that is so true for us as well. That is at the core of everything. And none of what we've talked about, or for that matter, none of what we talk about any week is going to matter if you aren't first in that place where you're okay with there being a God who rules the universe, who gets to call the shots. That's that part where we first have to come to him. And we have to say, okay, well, you're in charge. Whatever you say, let's work through it, okay? So that is a a core underlying foundation, I think, for this. As we've talked about this aspect of of worship, we've looked at the aspect that so often, again, cart ahead of the horse, we talk about where worship, we think we need to uh, enter into a certain uh, environment, whether it's music or preaching or whatever it may be, to get us in the mood for worship, and that's not the right way that we should be approaching it. Instead, we come to the Word, we look at God, we behold God, and as He fills us with His fullness, it explodes in worship. Worship is the consummation of that joy we feel in Him. This morning, as you worshiped in song, I hope that some of the joy that was coming out of you, as I hear you guys singing, came from a result of experiencing God this week, and, and I, I, I think it's so exciting when we look at that this way. As we've talked about all that, and how sometimes that that comes out, that explodes, that consummates through our song, sometimes it does through the way we live, that's what we talked about last week, and our lifestyle, Um, we've we've had this, at at least to me, there's a disconnect. And I don't know if you guys have felt that way, too. You go home, you're like, yeah, that sounds really good, that sounds great, but there's still this disconnect um, of how do we actually see and savor God in the way that we're talking about. I want him to be my highest treasure, but how do I get there? I want to have this relationship with him like we're talking about, but how? I want to go deeper with God, but how do I get there? That's what I've been feeling, because I go home and I sit and I open the Bible. I'm like, okay, how do I experience God? And it's kind of nothing's happening. And, and, and there's times like that. And there are, I'm not going to lie, there's times when I do open up the Word and it's just blowing off the pages to me. But there is kind of a disconnect. And, and I don't know if you guys have been feeling that way, but I think that is normal for us. We need to come and find a way so that we can work through that and we can see and experience God in a way that truly does fill us up. And that's what I hope today can do. This is... Um, My hope is that today's message gives you guys some practical meat on the bones of how we can take this and move forward in life. Uh, And in order to do that, uh, what we're going to focus on today is the fact that God, being such a great God, didn't just leave us out to dry to figure this out on our own. He didn't just say, figure out how to enjoy me, and when you do, it'll be great. I'll talk to you then. He gave us some help. And one of the greatest helps he gave us was this book that's right in the middle of our Bible, the Psalms. And so that's what we're going to look at today, is what the value of the Psalms really are. One of the first things that we'll look at um, is probably something that I would normally put at the end as an application point. But I want it to kind of resonate through throughout today as we look at these things. And that is the fact that when we look at the Psalms, One of the most valuable things they do is they teach us how to express our hearts to God. You might say they teach you you to pray, but sometimes we express our hearts in other ways than praying. But the Psalms give us kind of almost like a primer in kindergarten for how to approach God in, in prayer and in praise. If you struggle with how to speak to God, how to praise him, how to show honor and respect and still reverence while still being honest with the emotions that are in you, The Psalms are going to help you with that. And this is the wonder that God gave to us. I think it's actually just absolutely stunning that God cared about our emotions enough to connect to that point. He doesn't want you to come before before Him without being honest. He wants you to come, be able to express yourself, be able to express what's going on inside your heart when you're feeling those emotions, when you're feeling neglected by people or even by God Himself. He wants you to be able to express those things But there's also a way that is proper to do that. And it's not just blow open your mouth and just whatever comes out. There is a proper way to do it. And and that is what the Psalms help us see is how do you express what's in your heart in a way that still honors God but also fills you with the fullness of him in return. So, um, and I think just as a reminder with this, when we look at the fact that we are looking to be filled with the goodness of God, the fullness of God. And he says, come experience me. I have joy overwhelming that will satisfy every desire that you can imagine. It's going to be more satisfying than anything. Don't forget, he also enjoys this. And, and you shouldn't be spun out by that. Some people think, oh, well, he's just selfish. If he's calling for our praise because uh, he gets something out of it, well, how selfish is that? You have to think of it like, like a father who says, Son, this weekend, Saturday, I'm taking you fishing. And it's just going to be you and me. I cannot wait. I'm really going to look forward to the time we're going to spend together. Now, does it make it any less enjoyable for the son because his dad is getting enjoyment out of it also? No. You wouldn't think of that in a normal sense. Think of God in the same way. When he says, come, enjoy me, fellowship with me, you're going to have a blast, but I'm going to enjoy it as well. That is what he's doing when he's inviting us to come and to experience him. So we need to remember that. But first and foremost, the Psalms, as we look at them, they give us this kind of this framework so that we can come, we can enjoy God, and but also we can express what's going on inside of us um, to him. Now, there are a lot of different types of Psalms in, in the 150 that we have here in the middle of our Bible. Go ahead and turn to Psalms 103. Just to start here, just so we have a starting place, we're going to be bouncing all over today. And in fact, I think it would be good if you guys aren't note takers to get out your pencil because what I'm going to do is we're just going to walk through um, five different types of psalms. They're just categories that I came up with. There are lots of other ones that we're not going to look at. My hope is that as we look at these types of psalms, you can see different avenues for which you can use these psalms to express yourself to God, to, to pray and learn to interact with him. But Psalms 103 verses 13 through 14 to me is kind of a lot of the explanation for just God's goodness in doing this, that he gave us a variety. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust, right? So God, God knows our weaknesses. He knows that it's hard for us to come to him. He knows that we're broken. He knows that we're fallen, and fallen farther than most of us would admit from him, and, and that it's going to take some time to get back, to get to a point where you're experiencing this fellowship and this relationship with him. So he remembers that, and the Psalms, I think, give us that framework. So the, of these Psalms that we're going to look at, I'm going to skip this because we don't have time to go through that. I'm trying to delete that slide at home time. The first one that we're going to look at is um, Psalms of Thanksgiving, okay? And again, we're going to go through just five types today um, in the interest of time. But you guys can, as I talk about these, I'm just going to put them up like that, and you can write these down. These are not all the Psalms of Thanksgiving. Don't get me wrong on that. These are just some of them, all right? As we look at Psalms of Thanksgiving, I am going to draw uh, a little bit of a distinction. I'm going to cut in half Thanksgiving and praise. We'll look at praise next all right, sometimes those things overlap, all right, sometimes our thanksgiving and praise are the same, and you will read Psalms in which he's thanking the Lord for what he's done, he's also praising him. The reason I want to make a clear distinction here is because when we come before the Lord, if you're like me, we sometimes have a hard time figuring out the difference between these two things. Thanksgiving is when you come to the Lord and you thank him for things that he's done. It might be in your own life. It might be in the life of someone you've seen where God has worked a miracle or he's, he's worked in their heart or you've seen him do something miraculous or awesome or great and you thank him for that. It might be thanking him for times past where he's worked in the church or in Israel. Those are things of thanksgiving. Look at what God has done and thank him for. it. Okay? They are different um, from praise. We'll talk about what praise is next. But turn, if you can, we'll just pick one of these, and we're not going to read the whole thing. Turn to Psalms 92. It's just a couple pages back from Psalms 103. This is a good example of a thanksgiving psalm. And, of course, it starts with, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness at night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hand, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, behold, your enemies will perish as all evildoers will be shattered. You have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You've poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my assailants. All right, so I I just I said I wasn't going to read the whole thing, and I almost did. Um, it's hard to stop. But you can see he's talking, he's gushing out to God, thanksgiving for things he's seen God do. And each of these psalms, you're going to see that. So if you are in a point where you you say, "I, I need to come before, I need to give thanks, and you don't know how to do it, you can look at your own life, you can look at things you've seen God do, but you can also open up a psalm. You can see what's a proper way to come before God and do that, and this will give you a framework for that. So how does Thanksgiving differ from praise? We'll look at praise next. Thanksgiving, where you are thanking God for who he is and what he's done, or for the things that he's done, praise is more focused on who he is specifically. On, it's more, uh, it's the difference of, think of like a, a love relationship between a husband and wife. And if the wife only ever talks about, when she talks to her husband, she only says, thank you for all the things that you've done for me, I'm so thankful that you first you know, that you even chose me out of all the women and that you married me and then that I thank you for all the stuff. That's great and that really lifts a husband's heart up. But if that's all she ever says, after a while he's going to start thinking, does she love me for what I do for her or does she actually love me? And our relationship with God I think is very similar. Praise for God and where I draw this distinct line is when we come to him, we just, we praise him for who he is. Psalms 19 that we just read was a psalm like that. It's just talking about how heavens glorify God. Man, look how great and how awesome and amazing he is. Turn over to Psalm 104 for an example of this. <clears throat> psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chamber on the waters. He makes the cloud his chariot. He rides on the wings of the winds, he makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it would never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment the water stood above the mountains. And he goes on, he looks at creation in the world. You might be saying, Well, he's looking at things God's done. I told you they overlap some. But in this, in this psalm of praise, he's looking at the fact that God rides on creation, and he's just expressing as I look at creation I see you are the king of creation. And, and you are the founder of the foundations. And he's just overflowing with praise. In your time with the Lord, I would encourage you to separate them. Start with some thanks. Thank God for that. But don't make that it. Go into some praise. I'm going to be honest. Praise is sometimes, for some reason, especially if we tell you to stand up and praise in an assembly like this, it's awkward for us. And I don't know why that is. It's awkward for me, too. If I stand up and say, praise the Lord because... He is just, he rides on the winds. You know, I'm going to feel like everyone's looking at me and like, geez, what do you think, you're a poet? Like, shut up. (laughs) I can't talk like that, you know. So it's, I don't know why there's this awkwardness to it, but there wasn't in the time of the Psalms and when David was ruling and reigning. And um, I I think we've got to break through those barriers. We've got to be able to not be ashamed to stand up in an assembly and say, I just praise the Lord because this is what I've seen him be. And and wax eloquent if you have to. Who cares? You're talking about God. You're not talking to us. So, again, the Psalms give us these frameworks. If you don't feel like standing up, waxing eloquent, okay, stand up and read Psalms 104. We'll go with it. It's fine. The point is, we need to be able to be comfortable praising God, as in a relationship, as you read these, as you memorize these, your heart will begin to be filled with that fullness that we were talking about. He will begin to pour into there, and you're going to start overflowing in joy where you can't help but worship. So it's important to look at that. There's a third category here that I, I separated. And again, these first three kind of run together, but this one I call Psalms of Adoration, And these are ones that don't just praise God for his character, but they're they're a lot of just kind of glorifying God. and, and, And really, it's kind of almost romantic of just gushing about who God is. Psalms 23, you guys are familiar with, talking about the relationship of God as our shepherd who leads and guides us. Psalm 63, go ahead and turn over to that one. Psalm 63 is a great example of this where he says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, for I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up your hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat." And rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed and meditate you on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. You see how this is really just a psalm of adoration. And again, if you're wondering how to come before God, if you don't know how to express your heart to God, If you don't know how to come into this relationship that we've been talking about all this time, open up the Psalms. Read these. If you have to commit them to memory, commit them to memory. And the more you do it, your heart will be changed. You'll find that you start talking to God in ways like you see the psalmist talk. You might be mixing verses together. You might not even know you're doing it. It doesn't matter. The Psalms are teaching you how to talk to God. And that's a critical part not all of our emotions are good ones. Not all of them are praise and happiness and joy all the time. There are a lot of psalms throughout this book that deal with lament or desolation. And, and this is a very important part of our worship as well. Because we need to learn how to express ourselves in the times when we are depressed, when we are Feeling alone and abandoned. There are times, yeah, you look at creation, your heart just overflows with praise or thanksgiving, but there's also times when we feel desolate. And the psalmist was not in any way foreign to that. Go ahead and turn to Psalms 42. This is one that we've even referenced the past couple weeks as a familiar one, because we sing the first couple verses of it. Psalms 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Sounds great right there. We sing the song, as the deer. But you keep going on here. It's, it's tough. My, my tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng, and lead them in procession in the house of God, with loud shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And he goes through these cycles as you read through, where he goes and says, I am so cast down, I am so depressed, really, is the modern word for it. And yet, you see in the end, how he turns us around each time, he will go down and say, I feel cast off, I feel desolate, and yet, I will hope in God. And he chooses to make a choice. This is why it's important for us to learn. The Psalms teach us a framework, again, of how to approach God. Without this, you might just come before God with complaint and complaint and complaint. I feel desolate, I feel, I don't even know why I'm praying, get up and leave. But when you have this as a framework, you see the psalmist felt the same way, and yet he closed it with, you know what? I'm going to hope in God anyways. I'm still going to put my hope there. You'll see this a lot of times through the psalms. Now, I'm not going to lie. There are some psalms that end very abruptly and without that resolute hope. And sometimes, perhaps there's a place for that. But for the most part, when you look at these psalms of lament and desolation, you see the way that their emotions were channeled back to give God glory. One of the speakers at the conference that we went to talked about the fact that what is at stake in every emotion we have is the glory of God. And what he meant was, with every emotion we feel, even in the darkest ones, we have the opportunity to glorify God through them. We also have the opportunity to slander God through those. And we have to make sure that those emotions are trained and know how to be expressed back to God. God can be glorified even in the darkest places. And that is also what the psalms help us with. The last category we're going to look at today is psalms of confession. Most of the time, they're not full psalms. Most of the time, you'll find a couple verses in a part of a psalm that deal with confession. Um, but there are psalms, like Psalm 51, which we can turn to, that, that deal with the, the entire idea of confessing your sins. And what's interesting is this is a personal, private thing. And, and if you struggle with, how do I really actually come to the point where I confess my sins before God? What does is, what is a broken and contrite heart actually look like? You open up a psalm. You might not have the words, but they are here and they can help you. This is a familiar one that we know um, of David, and I, it was brought up um, in one of the sessions there, but I've also always kind of felt, boy, this, you talk about David, I mean, he sinned, he messed up worse than, he messed up really bad, obviously, with adultery, then covering up um, what he didn't call murder, but it was murder, and in the end, he was a murderer and an adulterer, and by the time God came to him, and chastise him. He was broken. But he went through all that, was restored, God restored him, and this was his prayer of confession. But I've always found it a testimony of his humil- humility that he put this in the song book. Can you imagine every Sunday, if I was an adulterer <laughs> and a murderer, being saying, okay, turn to page 233. Where the preface says, this is when Derek really screwed up bad. <laughs> and, and that every Sunday is, is in the, the hymn book. We, usually once we sin, we want the forgiveness, we want to move on past it. But he left it there. He left it there. And the, the Israelites would open that up and say, oh yeah, oh yeah, David, you really messed up. But there's a reason for that. And there's a reason for private and I would even say public confession. It's because of what, how God is revealed. Again, God is glorified even in the dark times. This starts, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see this as you go throughout. You see how he he continually will turn things back to his sin, but how God is still glorified, how God is still uh, blameless in his judgment, and what God truly desires in the inner parts. So even in this, there is extreme value in the Psalms of Confession. As I said, these are only five categories. You can find others. There's There's psalms about supplication that teach us how to actually ask God about things. And you can look at what does the psalmist ask for? Is he asking for health, wealth, prosperity? Quite honestly, sometimes he does. But a lot of times it's God. Will you visit the orphan, the widow? Please save them, help them. He's asking for different things. And your heart can be changed as you look at those things. There are psalms that they call them, it's a really big word, imprecatory, but it's basically when when the psalmist is calling out for God to judge evildoers, those are some heavy psalms. And those are kind of hard ones to sing in church. I'm not even sure if we should. In the light of the New Testament, if we should always be doing that, there's a lot that we look at. But I do believe there are times when we pray those things. When you look at evil going on in the world, you say, God, just stop it. Stop that evil. Put an end to it. Judge it. And that's okay. Because when you do that, you are learning, as the psalmist was, to look at who is the true judge. God is the true one. He will judge people. All these things. They're just they're things that channel our hearts that show us how we should be responding to God. So as we look at this, the value of the Psalms, I hope you guys can see truly how valuable these things are for us. They they show us how we can relate to God. Now, as we turn the, the corner towards the end here, there's two things that I think are really important for us as we look um, at at the Psalms and how they're used, but also at this entire series and what we've been looking at. One of them is, is corporate worship, which is worship in the church setting. The other one is family worship at home. We've lost a great deal of what it means to be human anymore, I think, especially in the West here in our culture. And mostly I'm talking about the fact of that we were created to dwell in community. God is Trinity. It's hard for us to con conceptualize that he is one God, but three. But he is. And he dwells in perfect unity and fellowship, but also in community. And that's why the church community is so important. And we can't minimize the importance of that. But the family is a smaller unit of that. And it's also very necessary. The home is the first place where this humanity, where who we were made to be, has been broken down. But it's also the first place where revolution can begin. And that's what's exciting for me. I'm still a young guy. I love the word revolution. And you give me something to revolt against. And I like revolting against powers that be, be they in the spiritual realm or whatever. But I think that lives in each of us when we see the chance we can revolt against the world system around us. Now, in this next section, as I look at family worship first, I am talking to families with children because we have a lot of them in here, myself included. But this doesn't just apply to them. It might be, um, you might be single with a roommate. You might even be single just with your own home. You might be a couple. You might be um, you know, uh, grandparents. There's a lot of different applications for how the home is a place for this. But specifically speaking to parents, we talked about waging war against things that come against our affection that try to steal our affection, that try to steal that joy that we're supposed to find in the Lord. And I want you to take that, and I want you to apply it to raising your own children, especially fathers. We are heads of our household, and we are guardians of our home. We have a responsibility to wage war against the things that would steal our children's affection, our wives' affection, and our own affection. And they come at us so much. And they don't come only in the big, dark ways that we usually think. I think in America, they come very subtly. They come in little things that sweep us away. They might be entertainment, you know, just watching TV or, or whatever it is, or, or reading even good books can be uh, entertainment and things, or it might be whatever it is, those kinds of things that just continually fill our lives with something other than God. But it also could just be time. <clears throat> and this is something that Uh, Leah and I have been working through a lot, too, because there's so many things that can steal your time, and they all are good things, it seems. You know, they can be church events, they can be school, they could be hobbies, they could be your kids going over to friends' houses, they could be involved in sports and things, but pretty soon, if all your time is gone and you have no time to worship as a family, you're losing the battle. Again, this has been very convicting for us. We're looking at this, and we are—we have not figured this out entirely yet. But as we look at at the nights that we have to spend time, just sh- call it twenty minutes, worshiping together, open the Bible, sing one song, okay? It's so valuable, and it is waging war. It is revolting against the world system. We've talked about this before, but one of the scariest things I think we have in America right now is there are some really big problems that we need to think through. We need to open the Bible. We need to pray and meditate. There are some big questions, questions that atheists and unsaved people are asking, and we don't have answers for. And the scariest thing is we don't have time to even think about them. We'll, we'll go, oh, man, that's, that's a big question. I've got to figure that out. I don't know why I'm going to do that, though. And, and we go by. And we don't even have time to think. That is frightening. And that is where I truly believe we need a militant attitude against this. Because make no mistake, there is a battle going on for our families. As parents, the number one job we have as training our children is not following the Lord, keeping his commandments, singing songs in church, memorizing verses, being kind, humble, gentle, forgiving, well-behaved, polite, respectful. Those are all great things. That's not the number one thing that we need to teach our children. You can have children that follow that list to a T and are still hellbound. It happens all the time. You guys know the ones I'm talking about. It happens so much. Those children are perfect little children, and yet their heart was never given to God. The most important thing we can do is to teach our children to treasure the Lord above everything else. Can't emphasize that enough. That is is the pass or fail mark. Is Do your children treasure the Lord? Do they see him as the pearl of great price? Do they see him as something worth, you know what? I really want God. I want him more than anything else. That is what we have to be doing. And the best way they're going to learn this is if they see it in us parents. That is the most important you guys know, I'm no child psychologist, but you guys all know, the most impactful thing for children is to see their parents excited about something. If you're excited about sports, about entertainment, about video games, about technology, about business, about money, your children will be also. But if you're excited about the Lord, if they see there's actually a joy, that my parents don't just follow the Lord because they're supposed to. No, they actually enjoy doing it. And even in dark times, they enjoy the Lord they will be impacted by that. And that is how we wage war. So we have to remember that. The value of the Psalms for our children is just like for us, those Psalms teach us to pray, teach us to relate to God. They're a primer book for your children too. And if if your kids want to be able to, to taste and see that the Lord is good, open up Psalms 34 and let them read that. If they want to see that The heavens are just amazing in their creation of God. Open up Psalm 19 like we looked at. When they they hear you in family devotions read, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, they learn that God is like thirsting for water, and he is satisfying in that way. And when they see you live out, Psalm 73, there's nothing I desire on earth besides you. They will be impacted by that. Now, it is God that saves our children. We can't make them trust God. But if you truly treasure God, it will be a treasure of your home, and we have that responsibility. Start reading the Psalms together. That's what I would encourage you to do. It will train your children to relate to God, to see him, to wonder in him. And I would also even say this. Don't be afraid to sing them. You don't have to be musical there's a story of one of the musicians with the Getty band. He's a guitar player. He's an incredible musician. He, he said when he was growing up, his dad, they always sang together. And he, his dad was completely tone deaf. Like, horrible. <laughs> he couldn't carry a tune. And yet that impacted every one of the kids in the family remarkably because they saw their dad was expressing his heart through song, and he was excited to do it. And it impacted those children. So it really doesn't matter if you can sing or not. Sing anyways. Make a joyful noise. Open up, find a song, sing through it. It's good. The passion that you have will influence your children. Corporate worship. This is us meeting together here. And the, the power of that and the necessity of that, um, we're told in Hebrews 10, you don't have to turn there, but that we should not neglect to meet together. And it's, it's for mutual encouragement. And this is really important for us, as you guys know. Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is, when brothers dwell in unity. God has designed it so that love and adoration and the warmth we feel together really is like an amplifier of our own individual worship of God. The Psalms, again, give us a great context to sing in church. And I think we should, music leaders, we need to try to put some more Psalms in because they give us that framework. They give us a good way to relate to God. And if we're struggling with doing that, the psalms will help there. I think it's remarkable that God inspired a book in the Bible that's a song book. And what's funny is he didn't leave the the tune to it. He didn't leave the notes. So we can actually write new tunes that are easy to sing. But, again, the psalms give us that value as a church. But um, we have to be careful, too. When you come here on Sunday morning... We warned about this before, I'm just going to kind of say it one more time. If you get caught up in coming here with a group of believers that are worshiping the Lord, and that becomes your only worship experience, where you leave the doors of church and you say, I just don't know how to get that feeling back, that's a dangerous spot, okay? Your worship has to come forth from your relationship with God that you're feeling as you read his word, as you open the Psalms, as you open anywhere in the word and you read about it has to be an individual thing that when you come here, you're just joining your brothers and sisters in sharing in him in the same way. Like we said before, there are rough weeks. I get that. And sometimes you're just limping through the door, barely able to get here, hoping that there's believers that had a better week than you are. And I get that, all right? I've been there a lot of times. But that should not be the normal experience. That should be the exception. Our normal experience should be experiencing God on our own so that you're coming and that you are building up that limping through the door believer. That you are, as you rejoice in God, you're encouraging hearts around you. That must be our experience. We must be able to find that in our own relationship with him. So to wrap it all up, the whole series as we've looked at it, the main high points that we've looked at, he must be our highest treasure. He must be our highest satisfaction. He must be our living water. We can't be going to those poisonous cisterns that really don't satisfy. They seem like they do, but they just poison us and destroy us. When we go to God for our satisfaction our life, overflows in praise and worship, both verbally and in in how we act. If we struggle with experiencing God and how to do that, we have the Psalms. That's what gives us that ability, that gives us a framework, gives us somewhere to go to, and kind of helps guide us. It's a primer for that. And again, as we talked about today, we can't neglect how important family and corporate worship are. Try to see if you can do that. See if you can start singing or going through psalms with your children. We, our kids are going to be excited about what we are, who we are excited about. We talked about it all throughout this, but I encourage you again, wage War against the things that war for your affection. Get militant about it. Fight like your life depends on it. Because we are in a war, and it is a war for our affection. I had um, I was thinking about this the other or yesterday, and kind of threw the slide in at the end. But just the idea of um, sometimes I think when we're standing on a mountain of um, whatever it is that's satisfying us, whatever it is that you go to to find satisfaction, we think that's the greatest thing. We think, you know what, this is about as good as it gets. But when you catch a glimpse of that satisfaction that God promises, he says, come up, come up deeper, come with me. You have no idea. You're still in the valley. You think you're on the mountain, but look at where I am. It's like this picture of looking at a mountain. But what struck me about it, is you can't stay on the mountain you're on and get to that other one. you got to go down the valley. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some work. And you're going to really wish you were at least just on that valley. It's just like the children of Israel. Remember when they left Egypt and they were going to the promised land? They're going to the mountain. And yet, pretty soon they're in the desert. They're like, I would rather just be a slave again. At least we've got some food. They want to go back. It's going to feel that way. Those old wells of satisfaction, they do satisfy for a little bit of time. But God is a greater satisfaction. And we have to trudge up that mountain. You can't keep a foot on both of them. It won't work. So to close, I encourage you, if you are climbing that battle, be patient. Wait on the Lord. It's going to take time. Wait on Him, though. And He does promise will satisfy. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And as we do, I'm going to read Psalm 33, verses 20 to 22 as our closing prayer. Our soul waits for you, O Lord. You are our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in you because we trust your holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you.